this. He's the Saber Advisors Audio Experience. Good morning, Russell. Hey. Love Justin, that. Justin, Russell. Good morning, What's guys. What's up, Allie? How are you? Good, good morning. Good morning. Beautiful Wednesday. This is This Week in Retail with Saber Advisors. Uh, as a reminder, we are recording this room because we are content creators, and this technically counts as content. Uh, we have Russell and Natalie fired up and ready to go this morning, it sounds like. So I think without further ado, Nat, I'm going to kick oh, it off I'm... with you. <laughs> well, it sounds like you guys are ready. I am so excited um, for the crowd listening. I don't know if you guys know this, but Russ and Justin are what I call master merchandisers. And that makes me so excited to be able to learn any nugget of info from them. So, guys, without further ado, I would like to ask you some questions. Are you ready? That's very, that's very kind sure. of you to say about us, by the way. <laughs> I'm very flattered. Well, if I'm going to, you know, quiz you, I should compliment you as well. <laughs> that's definitely well, yeah, true. Yeah, make Just me look smart at the beginning, and then I'll look <laughs> dumb when I answer the questions. So, it's cool. I'll even itself out. <laughs> love it. Love it. All right. So, number one. Okay. So, when we look at a center, obviously, there's... Um, many ways of how to approach it, but there are some fundamentals. So I would love to know from each of you, what's the first thing that you do when you start this uh, planning process? Um, so I might kick that off, Russ. We just Go. clarify Unless first. You, you mean like, I just want to clarify. So you mean like yeah. blank slate, new development, nothing else there? Is that yeah. what you're referring to, Nat? Or yeah, it's dirt. Just it's dirt. Take it away, then I'll write it out yeah. when you when Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think we're technically, like, responsible for these answers, Russ. Like, there's, it's not like we're being graded, so <laughs> if we could just, like, wing it, it's fine. Um, okay. Tag, you're right. I think, first and foremost, obviously, you have to kind of understand, you know, how much leasable area you're going to have, how to best kind of lay that out. If we're talking about ground up, the possibilities are not endless, but they are numerous. So in terms of how you're kind of um, laying out the design of the center and, and, and what you're trying to achieve is very important. Um, in a lot of cases, and we'll say things maybe under 100,000 square feet, you know, it's generally a strip of some sort, um, you know, when you're, you're trying to just figure out kind of where your bigger boxes are going and where your smaller boxes are going. Um, I think it gets way more interesting when you've got the ability to, and this is the stuff that I know kind of gets Russ and I out of bed in the morning, when you can really create an environment. And to me, that's about um, creating space that's sort of walkable, creating public space, um, designing things in a way that there is, um, you know, an, an ability to really navigate it as opposed to just walking down the front of a block. Uh, and, and I say a block, like I'm picturing like a little literal rectangle. Um, so first and foremost, it's kind of understanding what you're trying to achieve. Is this a place where people are coming to congregate? And is that the kind of environment that you're creating? Or is it just about maximizing, uh, you know, your NOI and you want to create as much leasable area as possible? Uh, and those two things can be related, but are not usually the same. Um, and when I say that, I mean, you know, creating something that is you know, a bit of a destination or, or uh, creates a, an experience for people to congregate and spend some time. Generally, 
I find you can charge a little bit higher rent because there's more shopping done. There, there people are, you know, uh, the average stay per customer is not, you know, 30 minutes. It might be two or three hours. Um, and, you know, if they're spending more money, uh, generally that, that would mean you can achieve more in rent. But again, there's, there's a relationship there, um, but it's not always the same thing. Um, and I think, you know, just looking at the actual planning, you always start with the anchors. Um, and traditionally, the anchors were the big box stores, um, you know, the Targets and the Whole Foods, you know, especially lifestyle type centers. That's always been a real focus. Um, but I think anchors in, you know, 2021 is a different kind of thing. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be that big box. Uh, I found over the last couple of years, restaurants have really become an anchor. You know, the full service, sit down, you know, staying for a cocktail kind of restaurant. Um, those are really driving a lot of traffic. Now, granted, it's at certain times of day and at certain days of the week. Uh, but at those periods of time, you, you're literally driving hundreds of people uh, coming to the center for that very reason. Uh, so those can be an anchor, obviously entertainment. Uh, whether that's movies, whether that's, you know, experiential things, whether that's an activity like bowling or darts, uh, those things can be an anchor. The anchor is really what's drawing people to the center. Why are people coming there in the first place? And then, you know, working kind of bigger or more important to the center, uh, to smaller, kind of less important. But I find that there's always, um, and, you know, I'll kind of pause for a minute. We can kind of uh, catch up a little bit before I keep going. But there's always an importance of having different types of tenants in a center. You want some service-based uses like your salon or waxing studio. Uh, you know, you want your restaurants, but you want different types of food and different day parts. You want your fast casual and your, um, you know, full service. Uh, you want something that's open for breakfast and other stuff that's open, you know, later into the, the evening. Um, I think it's also important having character tenants, you know, any center A lot of centers over the last 10 years look very cookie cutter. You know, you go into, there's a, you know, an Ulta and there's a, a Whole Foods and there's a, you know, whatever. And it's the same like tenant lineup in every center across the country. And you could almost pick one up and put it in a different spot and you wouldn't really know the difference. So having some local flavor um, and, and, you know, something unique to that area uh, I think is always really important to, to create something that is, again, a true destination um, and what's going to keep people coming back. Wow, Justin. Okay, so first of that all... That was a I lot of information in a short <laughs> period of time. <laughs> I love that I can ask you, like, a single question and then you turn it into, a, like, a home run answer. So, like, props to you <laughs> right away for uh, that expansive information. So, mucho appreciated. Um, I do want to touch on, like, pieces of what you said but um, obviously great point with starting with the anchors, the different categories. Um, my next question I can either ask you or Russ, if you want to jump in, is, um, you know, there's well, usually I, a category. I, I, I have a little bit I wanted to add to that. And, and yeah, go ahead. Piggyback on some of the stuff that Justin said, but also kind of even, even rewind it a little bit further and just talk Perfect. even a little, little bit more granular about it. I think, you know, you got to really understand the neighborhood f first, and that's my, in my opinion, and understand the positioning of the entire project and how it sits in relation to 
the surrounding retail and as well as residential and the other generators in the market. So, you know, I always say this and I give this advice to anyone that's, you know, younger that's starting to work with me. When you get a new listing, whether it's a re-merchandise or ground up development or anything like that, I mean, first things first is go to the site, get in the market, drive the other centers, see what's working, see what's not working, see where there's a void, see what else needs to be brought into the marketplace. Again, it's our opinion and what we think works. You know, is there already a Whole Foods? Is there already a Trader Joe's? Where are they? Is, you know, how is that traffic going to affect our traffic? Is there a college? You know, what does this property back up to? Because again, depending on the surrounding environment, you know, around the project is going to also dictate how we look to merchandise it. If we're in, you know, adjacent to a college, that's one thing, you know, we might want more bars and restaurants and things that skew a little bit younger or more fast casual. Um, Or are you by a large hospital system and you feel that there could be a good play for, you know, urgent care or some other ancillary uses that would live off of the hospital or et cetera. Again, it's, I think every site is different and I think you need to get there. You need to drive it. You need to dig into it. You need to understand everything around it. You need to drive to the neighborhoods and kind of see the character of the housing there. What kind of cars are parked in the driveway? What is the, are the lawns manicured? I mean, that's going to really kind of dictate how the neighborhood's going to receive the project and what you need to put into the project. Um, so that's just the one thing I wanted to add on. And I think that's for any listing assignment, whether it's, you know, a big project or a small project, do you want to go there and understand what's not there and what is there? Because there's nothing more embarrassing also than sending a site to a tenant and they're like, Oh, I'm literally next door because you haven't been there. Right. And that happens to everybody. Um, we've all made the mistake, but you know, the way to mitigate that is to get out there and, and see your product, right? Most important. And then to just piggyback on what something that Justin said, I think a really good point that he made is you got to understand the landlord's vision, right? Is he looking to create NOI? Is it all about the dollars, right? Which there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that in a negative way. Is it about eking every dollar out of the NOI? Or is it about really creating a sense of place and a community gathering area and that the landlord's more willing to take take a more creative deal, a more aggressive deal, because he's trying to create something in the community. And every landlord's different, and every project's different. And you know, I think we all work on both, right? You know, I'm work. I'm actually going to show one right now where it's a great downtown uh, mixed use project, TOD, you know, transit oriented development, 360 luxury apartments, 15,000 feet of retail on the first floor beautiful building this was a 200 million dollar mixed-use building this guy built and we're asking a pretty high rent uh but yesterday i I brought him his great wine store operator and they made us an offer and it's considerably lower than what we're asking and he flat out said he goes if they really have eight stores and you felt good about them they had a really nice website I would take their proposed deal because I want that use in the project. I think we could lease off of it and I think the residents would love it. So you got to really understand your landlord uh, or a developer to understand their motivation because that's also going to really drive how you cut deals, who you talk to and who you're looking at. Like I don't need to go to a total wine. I mean, it can't fit them there. Like a corporate guy where he's like, oh, I love this idea of a boutique guy doing more personalized service and kind of catering to the high end residents in the apartment building. So I think that's really important for us to understand that motivation. 
because you're balancing a couple of different things, right? Like, you know, obviously the NOI being important, but the, the long-term le- longevity of the tenants and the success of that shopping center relies on people continuing to come back. And that's an important fact that I think gets overlooked a lot. You know, you could put the generic box in there that, you know, is paying a lot in rent and that's great. But um, if that, you know, wine store that, you know, doesn't really have good customer service, um, if people stop coming because they're not having a good experience, they'll ultimately go out. And that's usually more costly than taking a little bit of a haircut on the rent in the first place. And I think doing getting the right tenants for the right project at the right number is such a balancing act. And that's so much of, I think, how we're trying to advise our clients in terms of, you know, leasing activity. There's always, there's always the right tenant at the right number and you're not always able to get that. Um, Sometimes you're taking the right tenant at, at, you know, a number less than you want because ultimately that's the vision and you see that. But generally, I think a lot of landlords, when we're, we're talking about focusing on the use in the particular tenant, it's because there's something else going on in the project, meaning it's generally mixed use or there's other things that are kind of driving value. If you have an exciting ground floor retail um, you know, uh, destination, you're able to, for in for the residential apartments upstairs or keep them, uh, you know, keep the vacancy rate lower um, or you're able to charge a little bit more for, um, you know, the office space upstairs. And that's that is almost where you get the value back for anything that you're kind of shortcutting on the front end. Right. Love that. Love that. Great points, guys. I love the, um, the vision part of this as well. It's so important to know who the actual customer is that's going to be going to these places. Obviously, with an apartment building, it would be the residents, number one, and then the surrounding community. So awesome points. We have a great crowd today. Wow, guys, what a turnout. Hello, everyone. If you're just joining us, we're talking about merchandising a center um, and also ground-up developments. And I do want to invite Jay to speak because he uh, came up here before we continue. Jay, you have any uh, nuggets to add? He maybe stepped away. I, I apologize. I'm, I'm here. I'm here. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I just jumped in late and it brought me right up to the stage. Uh, what, I, what, what I would add is, um, you know, I think that I think that the post pandemic world is is going to uh, really change how landlords need to think about merchandise, merchandising their centers uh, and, and I think they're going to have to get a lot more creative uh, and work with, you know, different technologies and, and uh, influencers and all different types of things that weren't really customary before. Um, and I don't know if that's if that's like an obvious thing that I'm saying or if that's something that people don't really think too much about. Uh, but I spend a lot of my time, you know, li- I always say living in fear of going out of business. Right. So, uh, you know, what are what are landlords going to do that is different and changes their our role? Right. As an advisor to a landlord um, or an advisor to a tenant. You know, I think I think that if anybody thinks and everybody listening, I think for the most part knows that I, uh, I'm kind of into the innovation in, in commercial real estate and brokerage and 
the evolution and I think that, you know, everything that's been happening over the last year plus uh, is going to force a lot of change in the near future. Uh, and you can't just go about using the, the tired traditional, you know, means of attracting exciting tenants. Uh, I had dinner with Joe Burns from Federal Realty last night and, you know, we were talking about this concept a little bit. Um, but I, I, I'd be curious to hear people's thoughts on, you know, let's be honest, the majority of in-house leasing folks and brokers are going for the low lying fruit and the more obvious national tenants that are easier to get in touch with than they are the exciting makers that could really differentiate a property. And it's I'm saying that as a broker who, you know, maybe is guilty of that. Right. So uh, curious to get other people's thoughts on that. Yeah, well, so- I think that federal is a really good example of a landlord that isn't so focused on only doing, um, you know, the national tenants like we're we just did a deal with them in their new project in Darien, Connecticut. And their whole goal there was to bring in, you know, the local fishmonger, the lo- local cheese purveyor, um, you know, the butcher shop, etc. to kind of, again, looking at their community surrounding it and what they think the community wants. And we did a Gregory's coffee deal there. And it's an amazing location, you know, home run pad, no drive through. And they've you know, said, we don't want a Dunkin' a Starbucks. We want like a more local operator. And although Greg has 30 something stores to them, he's still a local guy and they were very excited about getting him in the project. And he's in another one of their projects as well. And I think he's actually working on something with them at DC too. So they like that. He's a more hands-on user, newer, funkier, cooler. And they you know, made a very good deal with him and it was a very easy process and they were really excited about it. So I think they're, they're great at that. I think there's something to be said, like along the lines of, you know, what, what are you doing as a landlord, a retail landlord to help your project be successful? And I think to Jay's question and and or point, um, you know, social media is more important now than it ever has been and will only continue to be more and more important as the years go on. If you're not actively utilizing social media to bring people to your center, you've already made a massive mistake. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, shopping centers that try to do it, but you know, it's like someone's niece that's like running the account instead of actually hiring professionals and using professional photography and that kind of thing. Um, so I think that's a huge misstep. Um, if you're not programming or running events or, um, you know, creating things that are drawing people to the center for reasons other than spending their money. Um, you know, I, we've talked about this before, but I love a lot of what kind of Beth Azor has been organizing with the, this kind of concert series that's that's roaming around the country, um, where essentially landlords have the ability to take some of their marketing dollars, pay for a small uh, pay a small fee to, to get an artist and whether that's, you know, a, a local or regional name, uh, or whether that's a national powerhouse, 
um, but they're able to spend a reasonable amount of money and actually create a concert that they can offer for free. Uh, or they could do a situation where they're charging people. But, you know, a lot of times the the um, advertising dollars and sponsorship money is enough to more than actually cover the cost. So for something that might, you know, cost the landlord some time and energy and not even some actual money at the end of the day, um, you know, you're able to bring a thousand people to the parking lot of your shopping center, uh, you know, on a Wednesday night. That kind of stuff is invaluable. And you can't do that all the time. You can't do that every week. Um, but we work on a number of, of uh, centers with some really creative landlords who are constantly trying to, uh, you know, do events and that kind of thing. And, and during the pandemic, that's incredibly hard to do. Uh, but now coming out of that, it's it's actually easier than ever because people are clamoring to get out of their houses. Um, and I think everyone on here has heard me talk about Bell Works, you know, a thousand times. But, um, you know, they're running six, seven, eight events a month. Um, that are bringing people in, not to mention they're doing, you know, the farmer's market every Wednesday that brings a thousand people and all these other things. So, you know, if you talk about trying to engage the community, um, there's literally nothing better than saying, you know, come, come for this concert or come for this event or this book signing or whatever it is and bringing people there. And, you know, nine times out of 10, they're going to spend some money, even if it's grabbing a coffee or a juice. Um, but, those also might be people who are unfamiliar, have never been to that center before. Maybe they're driving 30, 40 minutes out of the, their way because they're, you know, super excited about whatever artist is there or whatever the case may be. Um, and they've never been there before. And they're like, wow, this this place and this space is amazing. Uh, and I really want to come back. And, you know, it's just not on my daily uh, route, but it certainly will be moving forward kind of thing. Um, and those are the kinds of things that, that change the dynamic of what makes a center successful. Yeah, I think that and another thing that I think about quite a bit, obviously, because it affects, you know, how I how I feed my family is, you know, are, are we able to as advisors, you know, that are that are solely compensated for the most part, right, by the transaction. And that means, you know, the the aggregate uh, term of the lease which is industry standard, right? How, how brokers are, are compensated, you know, are, are we able to really do what's always in the best interest of the property? If it's, you know, a very short term deal to get an exciting tenant in there, you know, we do it all the time because obviously we just want to do what's in the best interest of our client. brands that you know don't need to sign a 10-year lease you know I again another thing that I scratch my head on about how you know folks like like you and I you know on this platform right now discussing this topic you know are going to be able to to, to get compensated for the the work that we do um, when again we're operating in the best interest of the property the best interest of the client but you know, it's not really always money there for us at the end of the end of the rainbow, so to speak. I'll, I'll give you a good example of that, that I, I think is a big deal. Um, the very beginning of the pandemic, as everything was shutting down and I'm talking, you know, like late March, early April. Um, and again, that works as an example because it's something that takes up a lot of my time. But um, we weren't 
sure what to do, you know, everything's closed, how do we keep the retailers afloat? And part of that was creating a percentage rent structure that we were temporarily able to move all of the tenants to that opted into it um, to, to help keep them afloat. That was, you know, hours and hours and hours of my time that's not commissionable. Um, and, you know, it's just in the best interest of the client. And then, you know, following that up with a few weeks later, um, I'm able to find and negotiate a deal with a group that um, was doing pop-up movie theaters across the country and some and a, a pretty significant group out of, uh, out of LA. And it's, you know, a percentage rent rev share kind of deal. There really was no base or minimum. It wasn't really generating for the landlord to be viable as a moneymaker, but it was keeping the property relevant and people coming, um, you know, all of last summer. And there wasn't really money there to be made either. And that's, you know, those are the kinds of things that unfortunately, um, you know, sometimes if you're acting in the best interest of your client are not are not things that are going to make you money, but I can guarantee that they're going to, you know, keep, keep you on and keep you for the next one for sure. Um, but I would also say, and I know we're being recorded, but for everyone in the room and anyone that will listen, start prioritizing your time with clients and charging flat fees, retainers. Don't be afraid, especially on like a large ground up development specifically. It's important that you are compensated beyond just the commission on those deals, both in terms of receiving money quicker. You know, sometimes these large ground up development, you might not see their first commission check for three years, four years. You can't wait that long and your time is valuable. And also just in terms of all of the other things that you might be doing. You know, if, if, if you're only responsible to bring tenants to the center and kind of help negotiate the deal, then yeah, I guess just a commission is fine. But the reality is we're doing all of these other things, including helping with programming, including designing and merchandising the site plan, uh, you know, including guiding them on which tenants, you know, are, are the right ones. Um, you know, the amount of time you spend on calls, you know, devising leases and work letters and all of these other things, there's usually not enough commission there, um, you know, at the end of the day to be worth all of that. But a lot of times those projects are high profile. They're exciting. There's a lot of incoming leads and things. There's a lot of what I call fishing that's done, right? You, you have something that's big and exciting. You can go out to any tenant in the country and say, Hey, check this out. And they may, may not be right for them, but at the very least there's a, um, what I'll call like, you know, an opportunity to have a real conversation with someone. Um, so I think, you know, all of that stuff is valuable, but prioritizing uh, your time and money and, and get those retainers, get those flat fees in addition to commissions. I just think, you know, all of us moving forward need to really think about that and, um, you know, not just be happy to accept a commission on the back end once the deal is done, because that's how it's always been done. Yeah, I mean, Justin, great point. That's kind of where I was going with with my, you know, with with my earlier, you know, commentary, right? So, you know, I think that the there are so many things that I can't stand about, you know, traditional commercial real estate brokerage, and I and I'm very, uh, you know, vocal about that, and I have no problem being vocal about that because 
you know, for the last 20 years, I've been, you know, growing, growing my business and watching other industries, you know, where, I mean, we just, we, we're fully, we, we are so hyper transactional that, you know, if you take your foot off the gas in brokerage, you know, you're going to really get impacted down the road, 12, 18 months. And, you know, I call it the commission hamster wheel and, and, you know, things that, uh, that we all, uh, know really, really well that are, you know, some of the, the most painful things that we deal with as, as brokers. And I think, you know, the, the, the folks who make it through downturns and pandemics are obviously doing something, you know, different, uh, and especially, you know, the more mature experienced folks that are, uh, in a lot of ways more knowledgeable than the client, right. And, and, and really acting as an extension of, the real estate department or acting as the real estate department. And, you know, as a, as a company owner, you know, I know that our overhead is tremendous and the brokers are the first one to, you know, to be uh, cut out of a deal or to be, uh, you know, take a haircut on a fee uh, regardless of the good work that we've done, which is why, you know, we truly pride ourselves on being advisors. And, you know, I've always considered the word, broker, uh, you know, derogatory. I think it's an insult to what I do and how I've honed my skills to help, uh, you know, companies uh, add tremendous value uh, and, and the people at, you know, at those companies, uh, you know, make more, more and more money and, and, and so on and so, so forth through our good work and assistance. And, you know, it's, it's, I think that that's what's going to continue to change. And I'm, I'm just glad that you made that point, Justin, because the reality is, you know, for, for young people getting into our business, you percentage of these. The way that they are, you know, way you Jay, I think you're cutting out a lot, either that or I have a bad connection. I also am getting some cut out. Uh, you know, we're. I don't know what we're going to go with. <laughs> Jay, can you hear us? <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> I guess you he can't hear us. Um, I'll kind of jump in. I mean, I, I think I think there's so much to be rewritten about how we handle kind of our daily brokerage lives. And I think if you were starting from scratch and you were saying, you know, how do we how do we do, um, you know, our job and what's a reasonable way to get compensated for that? Um, you know, I think the answer is at the end of the day, waiting for a deal to get done and a commission to be paid, um, is probably not the right answer. Um, you know, if you were going to start this whole process from scratch, it makes more sense you know, really on the, you know, advisory side. And that's why Jay's saying, you know, he kind of hates the word broker. Um, 
we are advisors. Uh, this is not the same thing as, you know, selling a house and just introducing the, the buyer to the house and collecting a commission. It's a very different job. Um, and quite frankly, we should be paid different. Um, and I think that's an important, you know, aspect. Um, and really, you know, believing that, like in your heart, this is a different way to do it. Hey. Are you back? <laughs> Still cutting out a bit. No, I can't really can't really hear, but I can also um, agree. I mean, I can also agree with the the situation here. I mean, I've encountered some ugly situations in my career and it's just kind of saddening to be honest of how much people chase the bottom line as brokers and don't really do what's best for their clients sometimes in that process and I think it's a it's just something that can be fixed um, overall on a high level in our industry for sure no idea where to start but I think that's a great point for sure I remember the first large development that I was on where we got a retainer and uh, seeing that check come in to my bank account every month made me so motivated to work on that project. Of course, I'm motivated to work on any project, but the fact that I got paid for my work immediately was such a great feeling that I've never experienced as a broker. <laughs> so highly recommend and would love for us to go to that model for sure. I, I don't know if I'm back or not, but can you guys hear me? Yes. So, you know, again, I, I just... I think about myself 20 years ago struggling to make ends meet, um, you know, and, and, and that's where I get the passion to do what I do and wake up every morning excited to help other people win in this business because I don't think that the way that the, the entire brokerage model is set up, it helps people you know, get on their feet. And I think that, you know, the more senior level people in the industry typically have a scarcity mindset where they think, you know, if, if, if you're going to do more business, Natalie or Justin or Russell, that means I'm going to do less business. Right. So, you know, when you have that combination of that mentality, uh, kind of the, the elitist, you know, system of keeping the younger person in like a more assistant role, for a very long period of time, especially in New York City, um, you know, I think that it's like something's got to give. Uh, and 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 the biggest thing that I've seen young people run into, including myself, is you know we are like trained to take on any piece of business that we can get, and if there's a big project, new development project that we have the opportunity. By the way, we're not getting paid to do the work, right? And, and we know it's gonna take, you know, one, two, three, five years, especially on Long Island, it's gonna take at least three to five years, right? So, you know, you're doing all of this work for years and ultimately may never see a dime. And we've all been up against that. And, and it's just so frustrating because, you know, the people on the other end of, the, of those projects you know, they're getting paid along the way. You know, the attorneys are getting paid along the way. The, everybody's getting paid uh, and we're not. And it's really a, a challenging position to be in, not only as an agent, but as especially as a business owner 
who's dedicating the time, energy, and resources to do all the marketing, to order all the signage, to this, to that. You know, you're, 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 it's really easy to go out of business chasing the wrong projects uh, in this business. And I feel like people are too proud to actually talk about reality and make everything seem like it's more rosy than it typically is. That's true, Jay. People need to like sanitize the way we do things so that we continue to, to do things that the way that we do. Uh, agree with everything that you said, Jay. I would echo, but I just, you know, let me just say it. I echo everything that you just said. <laughs> Justin Ross, do you agree as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think, I think there's an aspect of chasing the wrong business, like Jay's saying that, um, you know, look, it's a, it's a struggle on a pretty daily basis, trying to understand if what you're working on is really worth your time and energy. We hear you perfectly. Um, okay, perfect. yeah, so I, I would like to, I think this is an interesting topic and I think that, you know, vulnerability is, is, is authentic and real. And again, there's too many people, you know, especially real estate brokers, you know, that, that, that I encounter all the time, you know, everything is so much better than it actually is. And, you know, and, and, and I feel like, you know, being honest and being collaborative and help is what this industry needs more of. And I'm doing my part. You all know that, like, you know, that that's what this is about for me. It's about the impact on the industry that, you know, in my opinion, is super. And designed in a lot of ways to help people fail, not win. And I could tell you that it, 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 in, in my fifth or sixth year of being in the business, if I didn't get a big check to go to CBRE right before the 08 downturn, I wouldn't be in the business right now. I'm smart enough to recognize that. And I'm also, I'm also humble enough to say it. Like I was in debt. I was in serious debt on a draw. And the only way that I was getting a big check to, to go somewhere because I worked my ass off, had great clients and had a great reputation and so on and so forth. Most people don't get that opportunity. And I don't think those 
I don't think those big six-figure draw checks are uh, coming out anytime soon in our industry. So I'm just curious if anybody else has in, in the audience here has anything to add about you know concerns about the overall you know advisor role, broker role, uh, and and you know feedback, thoughts, anything other than the the three of us up here who happen to work at the same organization. What are your guys' thoughts? Anyone? Clayton. Hey everyone. Yeah. Good morning. So I'm. What's up, Clayton? How are you, man? Um, so uh, actually, this is my first time speaking as a guest on Clubhouse. So thank you for the opportunity. But Welcome. I'm. Yeah. Thank you. So this is a really interesting subject to me, and it's something that I've been you know, noodling on for some time. So I have a boutique brokerage that I launched last year in the Southwest in New Mexico. And, you know, studying just the way that a lot of the commerce is going with subscription-based models, you know, and more of an advisory role like you guys have been talking about. Um, you know, globally speaking, I'm in the same predicament as what you guys are just because, you know, I see our role as you know, more of an advisory consultant type of role versus, you know, just going and being more of a broker to your point, Jason, I've always, I haven't really liked that title that much. Um, you know, I, I'm curious to hear more from you guys since you've actually done, you know, done this a couple of times. It sounds like, what are the conversation, like what is the actual structure of how you guys are, are structuring these type of, I guess, listing agreements or consultant agreements. Um, I would just, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not offering a solution here. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, learn more on how you guys are actually structuring these type of, you know, retainer fees and, you know, is, are you getting paid on a monthly basis and then, you know, potentially taking that out, out of a, a, a fee if you actually get a deal done? How are you guys actually structuring it and how are you guys actually having the conversation with the clients because i have some ideas but i'd like to hear it from you guys yeah so you know to, to to generalize the topic of you know consulting versus brokerage uh the short story is that you know every every scenario is different right and you know it, it's really difficult to go to a property owner and say Hey, all of our competitors are, are begging you to take on this project for free and they're willing to spend, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of dollars creating amazing marketing materials and signage and everything else that it takes on the property side to you know, do a great job of, of really launching and, and, and you know, creating a, 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 a profile for a, a project that's coming out of the ground and whatnot, or even an existing project, right? It's really hard to go to those, uh, to those prospects and say, you know, well, we're not going to do it for free. We're going to, it's going to cost you, you know, 5,000 a month. Uh, and oh, by the way, you know, we're happy to as, you know, if, and when we earn commissions in one, two, three, five, never, you know, we're happy to deduct those, uh, that retainer or, you know, any of that monies collected towards, you know, we're, we're happy to deduct it from, from fees uh, in the future. You know, really difficult conversation to have when, again, you're, you're a traditional commercial real estate broker. 
uh, or tra traditional commercial real estate brokerage company. You know, if you don't have a real point of differentiation that allows you, uh, and maybe it's a technology, you know, maybe it's, um, you know, different things that you're actually able to do in-house that, that make you more than a broker, you know, maybe it's an easier conversation, right? So, um, and then on the tenant side, you know, we are in a, in a, a unique business, right? So, I mean, of course we represent tenants in local geographies, but Clayton, you know, the bulk of what Sabre does on the tenant side is national advisory. So, you know, we are set up very much and, and, and it took a long time to get where we are uh, we're, and, and a lot of money and, and a lot of resources that most, you know, companies don't have, we have, and we're able to use all of that uh, to actually create the strategy for, you know, the business, whether it's, you know, the Northeast, Southeast, the entire country, U.S. and Canada, you know, whatever it is, we're actually now uh, using technology uh, and our, you know, experience and intelligence to do something that most folks cannot do. Um, so for us on the tenant side, it's a much different conversation. Uh, and by the way, you know, we're also very, very good at what we do and it's a niche thing. So we pick and choose who we want to work with. And, you know, we, it's, it's a luxury at this point to be able to say, uh, you know, to, to know how much value you add to a company and be able to say to them, look, we can do this, this, and this for you, give them a menu of services to choose from, and ultimately, you know, decide whether or not it's in both parties' best interest to move forward. Uh, and again, again, I will, I will emphasize that this is a luxury that took me 20 years to get to. So, you know, it's not it, it very, it was always very, you know, please, can we work with you and we'll spend all of our money, whether we make a deal or not. Uh, and I advise my team and challenge my team daily to audit and understand the ROI of every project we take on because, you know, especially coming out of the pandemic, we don't have the same bandwidth that we used to. So for me, quality is so much more important because it's, it's the, the answer to, you know, Sabre truly being able to go to the next level, right? Like analyzing how much time, energy, and dollars are gonna go into each project that we take on and determining, determining if it's worth our time and energy, because don't forget, it's gonna take up a, a, a good piece of our bandwidth, right? So I can't answer the question that you asked with regard to how to actually structure the deals um, because it's case by case. But I can tell you that, you know, if you're just a traditional commercial real estate broker that's doing what everybody else does, you're not getting a retainer anytime soon because they're going to laugh at you and just hire the next guy who will do it for free. Yeah, and, and, I, and I appreciate that and I fully understand that and, and, uh, and get that. And as far as specialization goes, same thing, we, we mainly specialize in, you know, national tenant rep type of work as well. and, and mainly ground up projects with drive-throughs, at least in the New Mexico market. I was just curious if, you, if, again, anybody had any formula or calculation 
you know, on this, you know, generating a retainer fee or a monthly type of consultant fee versus just a flat commission. And I just didn't know if someone had specific because to your point, Jason, you know, taking on a, an 80 acre, you know, development projects with, you know, junior acre shop space and pads is very different than doing a neighborhood, you know, center. And like you said, you know, and again, we work in very different ge geographic areas, but having a, you know, a small center and going back to the, you know, conversation where, you know, a lot of the tenants are wanting shorter term deals for that more eclectic type of use isn't necessarily worth our time. So I think it's just an interesting conversation globally. And that's why I wanted to just step up on stage and, and again, see if if anyone actually had a formula that they're using right now or not, but maybe maybe it's not because it's case by case. I'll, I'll jump back in for a second. And, and um, I missed most of that, but I caught, caught the end of Jay's thing and what you were saying, Clayton. I, I, don't, I don't think that there's a formula except that you have to kind of break down what the anticipated commissions are or will be when you think you'll be getting them and kind of understanding what the potential total value of what you're bringing to the table is to, to the landlord. And then you gotta, you, you have to sort of wing it because every situation's different. Every landlord's different. Every project is different. Um, there's really not going to be a clear cut answer. However, um, I could give you some ideas. We've done things where, um, and I'm working on one uh, right now, where you're, you, instead of a retainer, we have a success fee. So on top of the commissions for every signed LOI, there's a $5,000 bonus, right? So that's a good way to kind of um, add some additional value, create a faster uh, route to some money, and so that you're aware that's on top of whatever commissions were due and there is no payback on that. Um, I've seen retainers anywhere from, you know, $10,000 a month seems like a pretty common number where in some cases, all of that, some of that or none of that is repaid against commissions um, or reimbursed against commissions. Um, I've seen some retainers as high as, you know, 30 grand a month, 40 grand a month. Uh, but usually in those cases, it's it's foregoing commissions. But the reality is, you know, if you're making all that money up front um, and you're getting it on a monthly basis, you're you're generally pretty happy to forego whatever commissions are down the road. And at that point, you're just doing the best thing for your client and trying to get the deals done. And you're being paid as an advisor. Um, and on these larger ground up developments, there's usually more money available for these kinds of things versus, you know, releasing something, you know, when, when once all the uh, lenders have gone away and once all that, um, you know, money has kind of dried up, it's usually a little bit harder to get these kinds of things. So it really is completely situational, but that's kind of the realm of what we've seen. For sure, for sure. And I just will add, not to share all the secrets, but um, in my experience with some uh, redevelopments or ground up on a larger scale. Um, we asked for a retainer and a consulting fee that was pretty low, but we promised additional reporting and stuff as traditional consultants do. So sometimes to look at it with that lens is helpful as well. Yeah, that, that, that's actually, thanks for bringing that up. 
Natalie, because that, that was one thing I was thinking on my end was, you know, I think it pokes my thought process behind doing a different type of structure from a commission standpoint or a, or a fee standpoint is it really adds, in my mind, additional accountability on the broker themselves if they're getting paid on a monthly basis for their work and it's not necessarily a longer contractual obligation where the fees paid at the end. Because I think psychologically, if someone's cutting you a check monthly for your service, I think there's more accountability that needs to be there from the brokerage standpoint. And I think it also, in a way, fuels your um, desire to do a better job just because you are getting paid. You're, they're actually paying you on a monthly basis. So I don't know. Yeah. Again, I think it's interesting. No, it's, I mean, look, to Natalie's point and yours, you, by doing that, there's additional value that you have to bring to the table. And that's time, that's energy, that's resources, that's, you know, a, a knowledge and thought base in terms of things that fall outside the typical leasing scope, right? So that's pre-transactional stuff. That's post-transactional stuff. There's a lot that goes into that. So, so, and monetizing that in a way that you can clearly say, here's what I'm bringing to the table and here's what it's worth beyond just, you know, you're hiring a broker because without that, without that um, defined clearly both to the client, whether it's verbally or in their proposal, without that, it's, it, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. Um, and I think based on, you know, kind of, I guess what you were saying in general, like there's a, um, there's a need to um, really step up and be more accountable. You know, they have to feel like you're, you know, one of theirs, like they're paying you like an employee, right? You have to be completely 100% accountable to that. And sometimes you don't want to be. Um, and that maybe that's not the situation where you're doing this, but there's certain projects where you're willing to do that. And if they're willing to step up and, and you know, pay the freight, then, you know, that's not in the, not in the sense that, you know, you're, you're signing your life away, but um, you know, they, they have to really be a priority at that point. And that makes you maybe better at your job and you're putting in more time and energy. So, um, you know, I agree. I, I think it's funny though, Justin, cause as you say that it's also like, okay, well be careful what you wish. In, yeah, in some cases it's like, you know, on the, on the landlord side, on the leasing side and the new development leasing side, you know, that you could basically be buying yourself a job, you know, where ultimately it's like now, you know, you're so beholden to that client and, and you know, the expectations, et cetera, et cetera, that maybe you're better off actually not taking on that project, you know, unless the fees are really, really worthwhile where you could allocate a lot of time and energy. Um, it's, a, it's a fine line and it's very, very challenging for everybody. Um, but you know, one of my most important things that I do at Sabre is try to help everybody not make bad deals for themselves. And that comes with experience and having a gut for reality, um, you know, uh, so on and so forth. And, and that, that you have to take all aspects into consideration and especially with new construction, you know, timeline, uh, you know, zoning, uh, you know, just, just permit approval process, all that stuff. You got to really, I think so many of us are so guilty of like 
getting excited about potentially working on something or being associated with something cool that we like chase rainbows and waste our time and you know where we could be working on something maybe less glamorous and 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 killing it you know so i think that's something that each individual needs to really think about to justin's point earlier like all we have in the brokerage advisory business is our time and if it's spent in the wrong place you're you, you don't get it back and it could be the difference between you know having a great year or going out of business that's exactly right jay um we're getting close to the hour, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. But thank you for your earlier contributions. I think this was a great conversation. Again, thank you to everyone in the audience who came out. Um, this will be available later on the Sabre Audio Experience, and we will see you guys next week. Have a great day, everyone. All love. Great job, Matt. Later. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, y'all.